This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 3rd, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Jocelyn Kaiser talks with us about a successful gene therapy treatment for a normally fatal neural disease. Is gene therapy finally coming into its own? And David Grimm gives us this week's hits from our online news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. Welcome, Dave. Thank you, Sarah. First up, we have a story on tying the Earth's spin to earthquakes. So the Earth's rotation varies, right, Dave? Yeah, actually, you know, we think the world never stops spinning, but actually it kind of does. Well, it doesn't stop, but actually every once in a while it slows down. It may gain a millisecond here or lose a millisecond there. And these changes actually occur on a fairly regular basis. The weather can change the spin of the Earth. That's one thing I learned from the story. Yeah, the El Nino cycle has an effect, for example. And what they saw here was a much bigger, longer cycle, and they saw a correlation with earthquake activity. What did they see correlating with what? Was slow down, speed up? What, what happened? Okay, so what they did was they looked at this catalog of earthquakes that goes back 100 years. These are magnitude 7 or larger earthquakes. We're talking about very big quakes. So the first thing is that these major quakes appear to cluster in time, not in space. So they weren't necessarily happening next to each other, but they were happening around the same time, almost as if they were talking to each other, which we know they're not probably doing. But And they seem to peak at these at 32-year intervals. So every 32 years, we'd have a spike in these magnitude 7 or larger quakes. And what activity of the Earth's rotation did they correlate with that? There was a peak slowdown in Earth's rotation that happens about every 30, 32 years. And what had happened is about five years after that is when the researchers saw this clustering of major quakes. What mechanism could be linking these two things that are now correlating? What could affect the speed of rotation and possibly start up or stop earthquakes? Well, so when the length of a day changes over decades, as is happening when the Earth slows down its rotation a little bit, 
Earth's magnetic field also develops a temporary ripple. And researchers think that changes, slight changes in the flow of the molten iron in the outer core, in Earth's outer core, may be responsible for both effects. So what would happen is that perhaps a bit of the molten outer core is sticking to the mantle, Earth's mantle above. That might change the flow of the liquid metal. That might alter the magnetic field and transfer just enough momentum between the mantle and the core to affect day length. But also this mismatch between how the core is spinning uh, relative to the crust and the mantle could be translating into a force that's sort of nudging these quakes, not maybe not necessarily creating them, but causing them to sort of synchronize in a way and all these major quakes to happen at the same time. Wow. Okay. So how can we possibly test whether this correlation, how can we actually test whether this is happening? Well, so the proof might actually be in the pudding because, as I said earlier, these Earth slowdowns tend to happen about five years before we see the spike in major quakes. And guess what? This most recent slowdown happened four years ago. So theoretically, beginning next year, we should see an average of about 17 to 20 major quakes compared to the only four or so that we've seen this year. Now we have a story on a killer gas that aids elephant seals deep diving. Carbon monoxide. Yeah. You don't want that in your house. You don't want it in your house. You don't want it in your lungs. You definitely don't want it in your blood. I mean, that's sort of been the constant thinking that carbon monoxide is this lethal gas that we've got to stay away from. A lot of us even have carbon monoxide alarms in Mm -hmm. our house because a lot of people have died from carbon monoxide poisoning. But this study really explores... Could there be an upside to this deadly gas? And they found that there was way more carbon monoxide in the blood of elephant seals than you would expect in a healthy animal. Right, and 10 times higher than you see in people, but also a lot higher than you see in other marine animals like pilot whales and killer whales. And what's unique about elephant seals is they're really remarkable divers. They can spend up to an hour and a half underwater without taking a breath, and they can dive more than 1,700 meters deep. They also, in addition to having a lot of carbon monoxide in their blood, have a lot of red blood cells. And that's significant because when red blood cells break down, they release carbon monoxide. And that and that could be the source of all this carbon monoxide in the blood of these animals in the first place. How do how could having all this uh, CO we can call it sure. um, uh, how could having that in their blood help them with spending so much time underwater and so far underwater? Well, carbon monoxide it binds to red blood cells and actually slows down the delivery of oxygen to the body. Now that's bad for us because the less oxygen that's getting into our tissues the worse it is. But you can imagine if you're a seal, you're deep underwater, you only have a limited supply of oxygen, so you don't want to use it all up. And if you can find a mechanism to slow down the rate at which you're releasing and using this oxygen, which carbon monoxide seems to be doing, then that's going to allow you to stay underwater for a really long amount of time. So it's good for them to take little sips of the oxygen that they have in their blood. What about us? When they looked at mice and they gave them maybe a little bit extra carbon monoxide, what happened? Well, it seems to have an anti-inflammatory effect. It also protected against cell death and even the rate at which cells divide and spread. Now, that might be a good thing when you think about things like organ transplants, where you've got to sort of slow down what's happening in the body, where you've got to sort of sync everything up. Carbon monoxide, if it slows things down, could potentially be a boon to these types of transplant surgeries. But this was in mice, as I mentioned. So maybe for people, we'll take it slow. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> 
Last up, we have a story on nonsense. Uh, <laughs> I actually haven't heard of this before, but it's been going on for a few years now. I hadn't heard about it either, but it actually sounds like a lot of fun. And the reason it's a lot of fun is because basically the conference organizers ask you to come up with a really, for lack of a better word, asinine <laughs> scientific theory. But that's not the end of it. You've actually got to back it up Research. with some really solid evidence that actually seems to support the theory, even though... It's all complete nonsense. Okay, I'm going to need an example here, Dave. Well, the organizer, uh, a guy named Zach Weiner-Smith, his favorite example is the answer to the question, the eternal question of why babies scream. <laughs> and maybe as one person presented at the first meeting of BotFest, it's because it provides an adrenaline boost. Now, we know that's true. Wait, to the baby or to the parent? To the parent. Ah. Now, we know that part is true, but where it gets goes into crazy town is this idea, okay, screaming babies, giving us an adrenaline boost. So early humans strapped babies to their back and then went into battle because they had this adrenaline boost from the screaming babies. And that's really what helped ensure the survival of our species. Sounds ridiculous. And it is ridiculous because it's, I'm sure, completely untrue. But in fitting with the parameters set out by the conference, the presenter actually had a lot of historical data which found some correlations which you could use to actually show that this is a plausible hypothesis. Let's go back for a second and talk about what BA-FEST stands for. It's an acronym, right? Yeah, bad ad hoc hypotheses. Okay, that makes <laughs> sense. That makes sense. Are any of these, you know, there are many, many theories presented in these meetings. Are any of them ever proven correct? No. And, and in fact, the organizers reject presentations that hew too close to reality or that could potentially be proven correct. So for example, um, a lot of people, according to the organizer, have proposed this idea that the reason cats are so cute is because they resemble human babies and therefore they're preying on our desire to take care of our own children. But this is actually something that's actually been shown, or at least parts of this have actually been shown in the scientific literature. So this is too close to reality. The researchers really want things to get really wacky, really dumb. <laughs> <laughs> so is the intention then mostly just for humor, or is there an educational purpose? The organizer says the intention is just for humor, but, but he has said people have used this for educational purposes, potentially to show that you can make anything seem true if you gather enough evidence, but that doesn't necessarily mean it is true. Are there any concerns that basically spinning these yarns and saying they're scientifically backed, wink, wink, you know, <laughs> might give uh, science a bad reputation? Yeah, there was some concern about that at first, but the presenters basically went came to the conclusion that, you know, this was all in fun and the intended audience was smart enough to figure things out, even if some other groups like creationist groups, for example, have used the festival to say, oh, hey, look, even people don't really believe in evolution. They're just sort of providing all this fake evidence. But the organizers say that among the people that appreciate stuff like this, it's gotten a very good reception. Okay. Well, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about how particle physics is revealing a hidden void in the Great Pyramid of Giza. Also a story about a potential Achilles heel in childhood tumors that could lead to more effective drugs for treating cancer in kids. Finally, for Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about why the U.S. blocked Iran from a fusion mega project. 
Also a story about flaws in the oversight of risky pathogen research. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at sciencemag.org slash news. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Jewel. Are you a dinner party host looking for a foolproof way to get perfect meats, poultry, and fish? With Jewel sous vide, every home cook can create chef-level dishes thanks to precise temperature control. Jewel makes sure your food will never over or undercook, so you're free to focus on your guests or whip up some amazing sides. There are more than 100 recipes in the video-rich Jewel app to help you cook almost every protein from meat to poultry, to fish, to eggs, plus dessert, veggies, and more. And if your guests are running late or your apps are taking too long, not a problem. Jewel is ready when you are. Your food won't overcook. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use the code magazine to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash jewel, J-O-U-L-E, code magazine. Almost 20 years ago, what seemed to be gene therapy's inevitable progress from thought to experiment to clinical trial to the clinic was brought up short by a death in a clinical trial. Since then, research has continued and a few treatments have made their way into clinical trials and beyond. Staff writer Jocelyn Kaiser is here to talk about recent successes in gene therapy and what to expect next. Welcome, Jocelyn. Hi. Okay, you started your story with a strong example of a successful gene therapy, a toddler rescued from the clutches of a genetic disease that is deadly. Uh, Can you talk about her case and the 14 other kids that were involved in the trial? Sure. So the the girl I wrote about, her name is Evelyn, and she's almost three years old, and I went to meet her. She's pretty much a normal toddler. She runs around the room and dances. But in some ways, she shouldn't be here. She had an older sister who was born with a very severe muscular disease called spinal muscular atrophy that kills babies, usually by the age of two. And her sister died when she was 15 months old. When Evelyn was born, it turned out she had the same genetic mutation that causes this disease and was facing the same kind of future. But her parents found a clinical trial where she received gene therapy and it worked. And she got a gene that went to her spine that fixed these flawed um, cells. And she's now almost like a normal kid. And there there were 15 other kids in the trial she was in one other boy is walking. Other kids, most of the other kids are not walking, but they're alive and most of them can sit up, they can eat, they can do all the things that kids who have this disease usually are never able to do. So probably surviving what's normally a lethal condition. Right. Um, what type of gene therapy was used in this case? You said it went to the spine and it got into the cells there. How is it different from what came before? Right. So what's different is in the past, researchers who've been testing these gene therapies have usually tried to get the new gene into just specific tissues like the eye or um, maybe just the liver. And when they've tried to treat brain diseases, 
they have actually injected the therapy directly into the brain by drilling holes in a kid's skull. And that didn't work all that well. But what's new here is now they have a, they're using a virus called a viral vector that is modified to carry the gene into a patient's cells. And this particular vector is good at getting across the blood-brain barrier, which is really a breakthrough for the field. And because it can cross the blood-brain barrier, patients can get it as an injection into their blood. So there's no horrible brain surgery. It's it's really like getting an IV. Right. They do have to give them a lot of this virus, and that was a concern to start with, right? It was a concern because until this clinical trial, the highest dose that had ever been given in a gene therapy trial was 100 times lower than the dose they were going to need in this trial. And some scientists were worried that something terrible could happen. Like there could be a repeat of that tragedy almost 20 years ago. But in fact, the therapy was safe. The kids did fine. And now they're benefiting from the therapy. And this is something that hopefully will only have to happen once. That's right. So with this particular disease, spinal muscular atrophy, there's actually a drug that was approved recently by the FDA that has had amazing effects too. There are kids who would have died who are alive But it has to be injected in the kid's spine every four months. And this gene therapy is a one-time treatment. If it lasts, you get it once and you're good. Okay, here is my money question. Some of these gene therapies that have made it out into the clinic are $700,000. Is this going to be in that price range? Well, I really have no idea, but based on how much the price is on for other gene therapies, it is chances are it's going to be something in that range. I mean, there's a lot of discussion and debate about what these things should cost, but some people will argue that the costs of these diseases are sometimes many times over what they're going to be charging for this one-time treatment. There's also discussion of possibly only charging that price if it works. Right. Well, let's go back to the vector here. I mean, that is a lot of what the innovation is. So so what's new about this vector? Yeah, so what's new about the vector, it's called adeno-associated virus. And what's new is that previous AAVs, as they're called, were not nearly as good at spreading through the brain or the spine when they were injected into a patient. They And they also weren't able to cross the blood-brain barrier the way this, this vector can. The way uh, researchers found this virus was by um, studying the tissues from uh, deceased people and from primates and just looking for the AAVs that they found naturally there. And then they, they found that some of them, they turned up in larger quantities in certain tissues. And this one was one that they found kind of in, in multiple tissues. And when they injected it into an animal, it went into lots of different places, including the brain. And so now we have evidence that this goes into the spine and helps kids overcome this one disease. Is it going to be used against other genetic disorders? What researchers want to do now is test it in more diseases. And what they're really hoping is that it can get not only to the spine, but to the brain, because there are a lot of very serious, severe childhood diseases that involve a genetic problem in the brain. And so there are some more clinical trials that are just really getting started where they're going to give children with a disease an injection of this of gene therapy using this vector in their blood or sometimes in their spine because with older kids, it may be a better way to get it to the brain. What about therapies outside the central nervous system? We've mostly talked about spine and brain here. I mean, does this open up gene therapy to other areas? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, there have already been some successful treatments, for example, for a kind of inherited blindness that is probably going to be an improved gene therapy soon. It's also worked for hemophilia and um, for some immune diseases. But with this new way of delivering the gene therapy, now that they know it's safe to inject it into the blood, there's some other trials that are going to try to use it for muscle diseases, where until now they've only injected the, the gene into the muscle. But now they know it's safe. They are going to inject it into the blood of kids with these diseases, and hopefully we'll get a better result than when it went just into a muscle. What are the concerns? I mean, there's always a possibility for side effects with these type of things. Yeah. So one concern is that the child will have a an immune reaction to the virus. And that actually is what happened 20 years ago in that death. And, and the kids in this spinal muscular atrophy trial did have an immune reaction there. In some of them, their liver enzymes went up, but um, researchers were able to control that with steroids and so that's an approach being taken in other trials that they use steroids to control that immune reaction. What about cancer? I know that that's been raised as a fear for gene therapy in the past. Yeah, that is a concern with these AAVs. There have been some studies in mice that found that when you give them in large doses, you can get liver cancer in some of the mice. But there's it's extremely controversial, and some researchers say it's probably not relevant to humans, something that only happens in mice. But there is a worry out there that years from now, some of these kids who've been treated, that it, it could happen. Now, the the genes that are being used, that are being brought into the body here, they're not being incorporated into into the genome. They're brought into the cell, but then they just hang out to the side in a little loop of DNA. Does that mean that this DNA could be lost or that it might not last so long as the cell divides? Well, it could be a problem if they are cells that are dividing, because as the cells divide, only one of them is going to have the loop of DNA, and so the effect will be diluted over time. But neural cells do not divide, so for that reason, it should be a permanent effect. It could stop working for other reasons, though. The gene just could stop being expressed or turned into protein for some other reason. And so researchers really won't know until they have watched these kids for years. This really does sound like a breakthrough. (laughs) Nobody wants to say that word on the air, right? But, um, you know, do you see this as just one among many successes that gene therapy is having now and we're going to start to see it really come into its own? Yeah, I'd say that there have been several successes already and this is another and hopefully it's going to lead to even more. Okay, Jocelyn, thanks for talking with me. Good to be here. Jocelyn Kaiser is a staff writer for Science. Her feature on gene therapy appears in this week's issue. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.